You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live, where we talk to rising and influential changemakers. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, and I cover Congress for the Washington Post. But joining me today, I'm very excited about this, is Anderson Clayton. She is the youngest Democratic Party chairwoman across the country at just 25 years of age. Of course, she is representing North Carolina, which many are looking at as a state that really could potentially change the way that Democrats win, obviously not just that state, but across the country. So Anderson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mariana. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, I have so many questions for you. Um, But I do want to start a little bit on the national level because it's being reported that the Biden campaign is really zeroing in on North Carolina. We remember back in 2020, I think Biden had a couple of stops. I was actually there with him, I think, at one, but it didn't seem to be enough. Um, And this Mm -hmm. is something that uh, on the national level, Democrats seem to be needing to make more inroads. And that's something I know that it is a big platform for you. But, you know, A Democrat hasn't actually won. Democratic candidate for president hasn't won since Obama. So this is basically a lot of things that are falling on your shoulders. And I want to talk to you about how you're advising the campaign and what are some of the things that you are doing in North Carolina to really gin up that support and make a lot of voters feel that the Democratic Party is listening to them. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, You know, Joe Biden lost North Carolina in 2020 by 74,000 votes. And a lot of people look at it as though that's the opportunity state this year. And I agree with them. I think that we have a huge opportunity to really uh, reach out to Democrats that didn't turn out in 2020 and also didn't turn out again in 2022 for Sherry Beasley because they haven't really felt tapped into by our party or energized or motivated by what's happening on the ground right now. And so part of what I think the Biden-Harris administration and their campaign this next year really needs to do is show up in North Carolina more than they ever have before. Because I think that, you know, the idea right now is that the Democratic Party has a messaging problem. And I really don't believe that. I believe we have a showing up problem because the Democratic Party has done so many amazing things for everyday Americans right now, including two major programs, the Affordable Connectivity Program um, that came out of the Bipartisan uh, Infrastructure Act, and then also, you know, $35 a month of insulin relief for people that are on Medicare right now. And that's something those two programs are directly impacting seniors and working families in North Carolina. And not to mention when we talk about the amazing impact of Bidenomics, honestly, on on bringing manufacturing jobs back to rural North Carolina, places that haven't seen economic development take place in them or an actual future be put forth in them, I think in a really long period of time. And so I want Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to come to North Carolina and run strong on their record and also drum up that energy and excitement that we didn't have in 2020 and 2022 here on the ground. Uh, And my part in that right now is going around to all of these counties. We are crisscrossing the state. I was just in, uh, uh, you know, Dare County last week and then Bladen County. And then we were in Watauga County and Wilkes County. And we are really just trying to get out and active everywhere that we can. You mentioned that there isn't necessarily a messaging problem, but to your point, you just have to show up. So when these candidates are out and about, whether it is Biden or whether it's someone who might be running for Senate, governor, who are these voters that the Democratic Party should be talking to? 
I think everybody. I don't think that we take a vote for granted in this election cycle. And my job as a state party chair, I think, is to do two things, right? Protect my incumbents and get out my base. Uh, and if I do both of those, Joe Biden does win an election in 2024, because we know that the 134,000 people that sat out for Sherry Beasley and the 74,000 people that sat out for Joe Biden were Democrats that sat home. Um, and it's the same trend that we've seen happen in Florida, where Democrats, you know, they get beat up every election cycle to the point where we feel like our votes don't matter anymore. And in North Carolina, when you've had such a history of voter suppression through racial gerrymandering in our state, it is hard to see how we can come around from, from that in, in people's minds, honestly, where voters have been to the ballot box every year and wanted to see change and voted for it. Um, and we've seen that in the fact that you've, we've been able to keep a Democratic gover governor and a Democratic attorney general along with you know Donald Trump on a ballot, right? North Carolina is not a monolithic state. And I think that we have to treat voters like that that people are independent and they think on their own and they want to see what a candidate is going to really bring forward and offer them versus what a party has to give right now. Uh, because I really think that folks are, are disenchanted with both parties. And that's part, in fact, because the, the parties have not done a good enough job, I think, and the Democratic Party, especially of getting out in places and showing people that we're there to listen to them. And the Democratic Party is the party of help, as it always should be. You have focused a lot on rural voters, making sure that you are knocking on their doors, letting them know that the party is here. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because from my point of view and perched from Capitol Hill, a lot of Democrats are starting to realize, okay, if we want to mobilize not just our base, we've lost that working class union voter, many of whom live in these rural districts. We're not going out there as much. Can you talk about that and, and just how you've seen that change and how you yourself are trying to encourage people to listen to this base? I think that, you know, 2016 was a big wake up call for folks when Donald Trump got elected because people kept looking at me and they would say, I don't know how this happened. And, you know, me living in a rural part of the country, I said, I completely do because folks felt like they were not heard by either party. And when you have someone that can take the riled up anger of, of folks that have felt ignored by politics for so long and really tap into that. And that's what Donald Trump did. You know, um, my dad voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And I tell that story a lot because he was angry. He was angry at the Democratic Party who felt he felt like had left him behind in some way. And for me, that's because the Democratic Party had stopped showing up in communities that looked like mine. Um, and for me, I think that it is a big part of rebuilding and re-energizing the trust that rural communities had in the Democratic Party at one point in time. And that's not to say that I don't understand the, the racial dynamics here that we're dealing with. But for me, you know, rural North Carolina has the second highest rural population in it besides Texas when it comes to people. And we have one of the most diverse rural populations, especially when you're thinking about eastern North Carolina, where we have majority black and brown counties that still exist out there. And, and I think that people oftentimes forget that rural doesn't mean white. And I know that for the folks listening from Iowa on here and, and from other places that I've organized in, they might be like, Anderson, I don't know about that. Um, but in the South, in the Deep South, that is the truth. And I think that the Democratic Party has an amazing opportunity to look at the South as the sleeping giant of this party in a lot of cases and thinking about how do we build a strategy that helps the state legislatures in the Deep South really utilize the black and brown power that we have in these states to, to listen to them and to uplift them and to have them become 
you know, elected officials and put them in positions of power, because I think that's what we need to be doing all across North Carolina. And it's what we did in 2021. I came back to North Carolina after being um, on national campaigns. I worked for Kamala Harris's campaign in Iowa and Amy McGrath's campaign in Kentucky. And I thought that, you know, the way to really organize in communities was to go home again. And we flipped the Roxborough City Council in 2021. It was the first time that a Democratic majority had ever had control over this city council. And it was a majority black city council. And it was because 51 percent of the city of Roxborough had never had their voices fully represented on that board before. And we did that. And I think that's possible across all of rural North Carolina, but also in places where we just didn't expect it because we haven't had democratic infrastructure built in it before. You mentioned how people just want their voice to be heard, represented in some way. What are you hearing are the top issues that people are concerned about right now in North Carolina that, you know, if, if someone in the National Party wanted to call you and be like, just explain to me, what should we be talking about to these people? You're like, this is what I hear all the time. Yeah, I think housing. Um, and honestly, I, I think people would be surprised at just how much folks worry about how to pay their next bill. Um, and that is something where I think that, you know, the economy right now might be working for some folks and in some cases, but it hasn't had that effect yet on everybody feeling it. And that's something that the Democratic Party needs to own is that the pandemic is still here for a lot of folks. And not everybody bounced back from that as quickly as the way, as we expected them to or as everyone, I think, anticipated. And so really talking to folks as though, you know, what do you need right now? And going back to the party that we were in the pandemic in some cases of mutual aid and trying to make sure that we're helping folks access these programs that the Biden-Harris administration has put into place to be able to help pandemic bounce back. Because a lot of that that happens, I feel like at the federal level, never makes it down to the local level. And that's the part that I think a state party has a huge obligation to play is just the fact that everyday people um, are not living right now. They're surviving. And we need to make sure that we're helping them do that. One issue, too, that I know has really riled up the Democratic base, at least across the country, is abortion. And North Carolina had their abortion ban go into effect earlier this month. Is that something that you've been hearing from voters as well? And is it the issue itself or maybe some concerns from people who say, I just don't want the government in any part of my life? How are you looking to message on that issue? I think it depends on where you are, honestly, and in rural communities. And I, I know that people always say, you know, you don't have to give a different message. It just needs to be one. But I actually think it does. And I I really think that you you change your message depending on who you're talking to, because some people feel differently about abortion than others. You know, if I'm on a college campus, I really want to talk about um, the fact that abortion is a human right. And it's something that we've had our entire generation. And it's about to be and it, it's taken away from us at the federal level. And it's about to be completely at the state level. Um, and I think that this whole election for me, for young people, is really about losing rights or gaining rights. And we decide that in this election, whether or not we do one or the other. But when I'm talking about abortion in rural communities, I am talking about bodily autonomy. I am talking about the fact that, you know, we want women to be able to enter into the workforce and not have to feel like they are forced back into the 1950s in some way, where all we were meant to do was stay at home and breed children. And in rural communities, in rural America, that at one point in time was a woman's place. And I think that we are having to talk about the fact that women offer so much more to a family than just being a mom sometimes. And that's not saying it's just being a mom as if that's the only thing that you do. But I just think that, you know, women in the workplace is such a huge part of, of our 
our economy and our culture now. And it's something where we, women don't want to have to regress backwards. And I think that rural women especially um, latch on to that and they understand that better than anybody from where we've been in the past. So we've talked a little bit about voters and what they're thinking about. I want to talk about now candidates and recruiting them because that's another big component to try and you know make North Carolina a little bit more reliable for the Democratic Party. You've mentioned your own frustration. I think it was 44 seats were left uncontested in North Carolina during 22. Are you on path to make sure that there is a Democratic candidate running and, and possibly just having that chance to win and represent those voices that you've been talking about? Absolutely. And we're starting with municipal races. You know, in 2023, we have 1,600 municipal races going on in North Carolina right now. Uh, filing just ended last Friday for all of those races. And um, while I think that the Democratic Party at least wasn't able to contest all of them, the dream is to be able to, in 2025, be able to contest every single one of those races. And so really building out the long-term vision for what the Democratic Party should be doing here year after year. We did have over a thousand Democrats file for those seats, though. So I I don't know that so many went uncontested, but I do know that we did have a few um, in places that we just couldn't find people to run right now. But that means we just run harder at them in the next election cycle and keep building that bench in every part of North Carolina. Um, and then going into 2024, we're utilizing all of the bench building that we've done for the municipal races to also recruit people to run for those state house and Senate seats too. Uh, because I do want to make sure that all of those seats are filled. We know that Republicans are not that they shouldn't when um, we have got someone running in every seat. And we also know uh, that Democrats want someone to vote for in every election cycle. Three million North Carolinians did not have someone to vote for in 2022. And I want to make sure that that's not the case again. I want to ask you a little bit about yourself, because it is very impressive where you are at just 25 years in age, trying to really overhaul uh, a state party in many different ways. Um, you know, Something that's interesting to me is a lot of people within our age range, and, and you've kind of said this too, people are just like, I want to be involved in politics or I've followed politics, but literally nothing changes. So what's the point of me getting involved if I won't have any effect? That's mm -hmm. different. You didn't have that perspective, I'm assuming. So you know, when you're talking to younger voters, also through your own story, how do you make sure you engage young voters, people like yourself and say, look, look what I'm doing. This is how I got here. And you could possibly do this as well. Yeah. I mean, I tell that story of Person County like in 2021. I tell that city council story all the time to the point where I hope people get tired of hearing that story in some cases, because I think that it is such a testament to what you can do without knowing that you're going to win an election. And it was never about winning. It was always about putting up a fight <laughs> in a rural county, in a county that I grew up in, in a county where people didn't expect Democrats to win in. And they sat there and they said, Anderson, why are you messing with city council? Why do you care about those races? And I said, because, you know, if I can get people to believe at this level, I know I can get them to believe at every other level after this, too. Because when people see changes in their own backyard, they're able to envision it elsewhere as well. And I think that there is a power in getting young people to realize that that was a young person that did that, 
that went out and, and recruited those candidates that knocked those doors, that got people energized around something that people in this city and this county weren't beforehand. And I think that there is a huge opportunity for young people to really make change in their own backyard and not just be the people that are running campaigns, but also being the candidate. And, and I want to see more young people step up and run for office, because while I think that sometimes both parties might be broken, there's one party that's worth fixing and there's one party that's calling young people into it in order to help them do that. And that is the Democratic Party. And I think that young people have every opportunity right now to get engaged and to really bring their ideas into this party to make it something that we all can be proud of and have ownership over. Um, because that's what's inspiring to me to keep going. And what helped me run for this office is that I didn't do it by myself. I did it with a slate and a group or a great group of young people that ran with me and that also ran behind me in order to make this happen. And I think that the Democratic Party is going to start hearing a younger generation much, much, much louder in leadership roles and, and within our party, not just outside of our party. Um, and I think that's important. So I have an audience question and it comes from Leah. She's from Texas. She says, is it easy to register young people or it is easy to register young people, but getting them to actually go vote is difficult. So what have you found to be the number one motivator to get young people to the polls? Hmm. Other young people. I think that the mistake that we often make on campaigns is bringing even younger folks that like maybe just out of college back onto those college campuses to help get out the vote or to help organize them. And I really think we need to be tapping folks that are already on those campuses that are already heavily involved and have, who have an interest in it. Uh, the Watauga County Democratic Party, shout out Boone, North Carolina, but they do the most amazing job with this that I've ever seen. And they actually go out to Appalachian State's campus every year and they grab up college Democrats and they train them on how to be field directors and field managers and data directors and really make them um, have jobs on campaigns that allows them to utilize skills, but also ask questions and gain more knowledge about how to actually go out there and organize their own campuses. And it creates this machine of just young people who are organizers coming out of the mountains of North Carolina. Um, and they do that every year. And in 2016, when North Carolina went red, Watauga County went blue for the first time in history because students turned out to vote in droves because students went out there and registered people to vote. They contacted them about their uh, about the elections that were coming up in, in uh, Watauga County. And they also went back and knocked their doors. They made phone calls. They saw them on campus. And so it was hard to ignore them at the end of the day, right? Um, and I think that's the best success that we've had. So I wanted to ask you, you know, age is something that we talk about a lot more in politics, it seems like nowadays, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump's age, but also it's something I think that young voters, again, feel like they might be doubted simply because they are younger. You are in this position. I, I'm just curious what your experience has been with ageism and, and your advice to others who, again, might be a little put off about jumping in because they are young. Yeah, I mean... It's not been easy. I think that everyone doubted when I came into this job of that they said, you know, the 25 year old won't be able to raise money. Um, and, and I'm happy about my reports that have come out recently because we've shown them that we have um, and that people are actually really energized by a vision, even though it doesn't matter who it comes from, as long as it exists, a vision and how we make this happen. Um, and I think that they've seen that come out of the Democratic Party in a way in North Carolina in a way that we haven't been able to articulate or really envision beforehand of what that's supposed to look like and that that long game that we have been talking about for a while and, and how do we play it. And, and I think that 
the advice that I would give to young people is I never expected to win this election. And I think that that's been the beauty of every election that I've ever been involved with since I got out of college is just I never expected to win it, but I ran it really, really hard and like I wanted it more than anything. And, and I showed people that there was another option. And I really believe that that is what young people right now are going to show this party and, and this country is that there's another way of doing things. And we have an idea that is going to bring everyone together that can coalesce a coalition like we need that is multi-generational, that doesn't just include young people, but that is led by young people with the advice and the opinions of people who have come before us and who have, have fought these fights long before us, too. Um, and so I would just say, you know, don't give up and don't be afraid. And remember your why, because the first time that I ever decided I was going to run for this position, someone told me, Anderson, as long as you know that and you trust that, you won't ever regret running for something and you won't ever regret putting yourself out there like you have. And I didn't. And my why was because I was angry. I was ready to see something change in my party. And I knew that if I wanted to do that, I had to be it. Um, and the Secretary of State, Adrian Fontes, who is in Arizona right now, has a great quote with for that. And he says, you know, um, if it is to be, it's up to me. And I think that young people have to hear that and own that because I, I know that we don't feel that right now in a lot of ways. So before we go, I have to ask as well, you're filling out a pretty impressive resume. Are you thinking about running for higher office anytime soon? No. <laughs> Um, I told everyone when I got into this, I was like, I want to help the Democratic Party. I didn't know that I wanted to be state party chair. I, I kind of fell into it in a lot of ways, I think, um, of just, you know, wanting to see some changes happen. But I think that there is a huge opportunity for us to continue this fight for the next six and eight and 10 years. Um, and I know that I'm always going to be a good foot soldier along with everybody else in the trenches for that. Well, Anderson, thank you so much for giving us the time, giving us your perspective. Um, good luck out there. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Mariana. I appreciate it. Also, thank you for interviewing young people. I think that this is so amazing um, and something that I just I look forward to watching more of these. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Now I'm going to bring in two of my colleagues to talk about AI. It's a subject matter that I know is changing quickly and there it's really affecting a number of industries, including the news. So I want to bring in my two tech colleagues to kind of break this all down, Garrett DeVink and Tatum Hunter. Thanks for joining me, you guys. Garrett, I wanted to start with you um, and I'm going to read this because it is news and it was news to me. Um, that top tech firms actually signed a White House pledge on Friday to identify AI-generated images. A lot of things are changing. I can't even keep up. Could you break this down? And is this a big deal? Is this just the start of potential regulations that we're going to see? Yeah, so I think the way to think about the pledge is, you know, a way for both the government and the companies to say, we're doing something we're thinking about this because we will probably you know there's a lot of efforts at you know regulation laws that will force the companies to do things in terms of you know uh keeping up with certain standards but that is not going to be happening anytime soon i think you know um senator chuck schumer says that you know his timeline for regulation is months uh not weeks months not years months and so months is one of those time frames it's like is that you know the fall is that next year sometime and so the white house as well wants to get in and, and show the people that they are taking ai seriously and that you know they're pushing the companies to sort of adhere to certain standards and the companies themselves 
want to say to their employees and to concerned consumers and to us, the media, yes, we also care deeply about these things. And so this pledge is something that is, you know, voluntary. The companies went and signed it of their own accord. They weren't forced to. And some of the stipulations are a little bit murky. There's no real consequences if they break this voluntary pledge. But it does show you that, you know, everyone involved here sort of seems to agree that there's need for some sort of regulation when it comes to AI. I wanted to follow up on that briefly because, yeah, I hear it on Capitol Hill and there's this feeling at least of, well, we didn't regulate social media and that's kind of spiraled out of control depending on your opinions on that front. So it, there does seem to your point to be an effort, but has there been any signs of, I don't know, like lawmakers even understanding where to start? Because this seems like a behemoth and a big unknown. Yeah, and I think, you know, it is a big unknown, but also, you know, some of this technology is not, you know, the way that it's sort of exploded into the public consciousness is definitely new. And some of the capabilities of chatbots, you know, being able to have really complex conversations, pass complicated professional exams are definitely new capabilities that change things materially. But you know, AI is not something that just popped up six months ago. Um, it's usually a term people, you know, if, if we think about Google Maps, for example, if you, you know, right now, if you go to a place you've never been before, you just type the, the name into Google and you don't even think about it. You just put it on your dashboard and follow the instructions. Whereas 20 years ago, if you showed someone that, they'd say, wow, this artificial intelligence mapping application is incredible and so smart and it knows exactly where to go and it knows what the traffic and the weather might be that's incredible and so you know i think the technology is definitely changed and it's it, it does feel like a big moment but i think we're still not sure whether this is sort of as if the internet just got invented and everything is about to change or if it's more as if you know something changed uh, you know in sort of an iteration and yes some things will change but it might not be uh sort of the sea change where all of our jobs go away and uh, everything needs to completely change that some of its loudest proponents are, are saying that it is. Tatum, I want to bring you in here. You know, there's also conversation about how making AI technology free could be a watershed moment for many of us. How is this affecting content creators? And I know that's a pretty broad question since, again, we're all kind of grappling with this change. Um, so I'm going to take that one at a time. The first thing is how what's the impact of making this free? Um, so in the news this week, we might have seen um, Meta making its Llama 2 generative AI model um, open source and free to use. And that's different from Meta's big competitors, um, which will be you know, licensing and charging uh, for their AI technology. So making AI free comes with some big potential benefits um, when when it's open source and you know usable for everyone there's more visibility into how these models work which can help people uh, check for bias or uh, poisoned data sets um, but it also comes with some risks such as bad actors you know having more access to the technology understanding how it works and being able to you know make use of it themselves as far as what this all means for content creators i think it's the same as any other industry where you know there will be ai uh, tools that make life uh, much easier for content creators uh, one really obvious example that we're already familiar with is um you know facetune or uh, beauty lenses on tiktok 
Um, but there will also be uh, costs for content creators, just like everyone else, in that the content they put out there will be available to train AI models. Um, so then, you know, will those tools be sold back to them at a price that's trained on their own data? Um, will they see their opportunities diminish because uh, AI tools can can create some of the same content that they're creating that remains to be seen. And I have a feeling you're going to ask us about the Hollywood strike, which obviously has big implications here. Yes, I literally was going to follow up with that because I think that's for all of us who aren't necessarily following this. That's the most prime example. Um, can you talk to us about those concerns? And I, I think some of them have to do with to your point. There's some cutting costs potential here and how you might literally use someone's likeness in the future without their consent. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll answer short because I want to hear what Garrett has to say too. Um, I think that probably the, the biggest um, thing, if I were a, a big content creator and I was watching this Hollywood strike go down, I would say, awesome you know this is going to create opportunities for me while hollywood is in disarray you know my digital creator economy is going to have these new inroads for me to make more money and have more notoriety um but also like you said we've already seen there was like a great headline from our colleague drew harwell uh, the other month saying that you know there was a content creator charging a dollar a week a dollar a week for an ai generated version of herself to be your girlfriend so in that case that creator is making money but you can also see uh the flip side of that where a situation where you're not getting the money that you were expecting to get because an AI model is doing something that you could do. Garrett, your take? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, you know, I think it's important to remember with the strike that, you know, a lot of it is also to do with, with streaming and, you know, how that, how much is that, how much that has changed the industry, which is also a big tech topic. But I think, you know, there's this huge question hanging over the entire AI industry, the entire tech industry right now, which is, you know, was it okay for them to go and scrape up everything on the internet, which included, you know, every single Washington Post article that was ever written, um, probably most novels that were written, um, photos from copyrighted databases taken by working photographers over many, many years, and in some cases, you know, even films and movies, uh, scripts from some of those famous films and movies, and use it to create these tools that you know can now go and if you ask it to write a Hollywood script, it might not be very good, but you know it's still coherent. It you know hits some of the major plot points uh, that one might expect. And you know cynically, you might say you know maybe it's better than some of some of what Hollywood has even produced sometimes. And so I think people say you know wait a second, you went and used all this stuff without asking our permission, and the tech companies say well. You know, it's fair use, which is a copy a concept in copyright law that if, you know, the output, you know, if, if you're inspired by someone else's work to go do your own work, uh, you know, it's not just if you write a post-apocalyptic novel that, you know, the idea of a post-apocalyptic novel was copyrighted by whoever wrote the first one, right? We're all allowed to go and run with people's ideas and concepts and make them our own. And so that's what the tech companies say that they're doing. And I think a lot of people are saying, hold up, that might not be exactly how it should be. And so whether it's through the courts or through new laws, I think this is going to be, you know, maybe the central question when it comes to, you know, content creation and AI, like whether this is, is actually legal to go and do it this way. So I'm going to ask a pretty selfish question. I heard that Google is shopping around their AI um, platform to news organizations. 
how is this going to affect journalists? I, I kind of like to think an AI bot may not get to know our sources and, you know, having those conversations that help flush out a lot of our reporting, but it is going to affect us some way, right? Garrett, uh, yeah, sure. I, yeah, I can take it. I can take it. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, you know, I, I do think that the level of quality, we're still really not there yet. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who don't write for a living, they see these things and they see them as incredible. And 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 it's it's true because if, if you spend, if you only spend, you know, three or 4% of your time writing, writing is hard. And, you know, when you're sort of forced to do it every single day for many hours, uh, you maybe forget that. And so I think these tools can be so helpful for people who, they just need a resume. They just need a place to start. They just need, you know, a memo for their boss and they're stressing about it. They haven't written since college, something like that. But yeah, I think, you know, then again, I think the, the way the technologists look at it is they say, well, we've seen this exponential increase in quality over the last couple of years. Why won't that continue? And so, you know, it's possible that these things will get good at writing. It's possible that they, you know, technically they can interview people. You can imagine, um, you know, breaking news happening. Uh, there's a fire somewhere, you know, or a tornado hits a small town and then, you know, a news AI will dial every single phone number in that small town instantaneously and everyone in the phone in the town gets a, a call. They answer and says, hi, you know, this is the Washington Post AI reporter. Uh, and I'd like to ask you, did you see the tornado? And instead of, you know, three or four reporters spending all day making that those hundred calls, the AI could theoretically doing it, do it instantaneously. And so, you know, the Washington Post is not planning to do this as far as I know. I don't think any other news organizations necessarily are, but these things are theoretically possible. And it's thing, it's, you know, I'm, all, I'm a little bit, I think my job sort of makes me be skeptical of some of the more aggressive and, and, and excitable claims about how these things will change everything overnight, because I've heard that a lot from technologists over the years. But I also want to be open-minded and say, yeah, it's possible that someone might come to us and start pitching this technology, and it is theoretically possible. I want to ask you both this question and kind of look at the, another side of tech news that's been happening. I'm sure many people, if you have Twitter, you signed on today and you're like, where did the bird logo go? It's now an X. Um, Tatum, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and I know there's been so much Twitter news and we've seen Elon Musk try and change this company. Tatum, what, what should we take from this? Uh, so in case you missed it, Musk and some of his top executives um, announced that Twitter will be rebranding um, to X. And, you know, it's a logo, a white X on a black background. Um, and this is part of Musk's kind of sweeping changes at Twitter since he uh, bought the company including um, drastically reducing the staff, drastically reducing its focus on um, combating misinformation and hate speech. And so, um, you know, some people who were either must critics or even just longtime users have already reacted saying, you know what, this was the nail in the coffin for me. Um, the, the blue bird had a lot of you know, what marketers call brand equity, where people associate it with good things because maybe they had a good time on the app or maybe they're just familiar with it. Um, so given that, you know, some research, like I think Pew did a study saying that 25% of Twitter's users don't see themselves on the app in the next year. So if people react poorly to the rebrand, um, it could, it could uh, be really bad for Twitter. 
Um, but, you know, this is part of Musk's MO in that he said that he envisions Twitter as an everything app, kind of like China's WeChat, where you go on there to socialize, you go on there to make payments and buy things. Whether that's what people want is another question. Garrett, I also want to get your perspective on that as well. And, and maybe bigger picture, obviously, we've seen threads come into the conversation here, trying to take over the Twitter model. Um, can you... Yeah, there's a lot of people who are just trying to figure out where should I be, what's actually working, slash is Twitter going to be around with all these changes? I mean, maybe where we should be is not on social media, but um, I, I don't know, <laughs> we seem to uh, to always keep coming back. Yeah, I mean, I think Threads was really interesting uh, that it's, it's, it's sort of this weird, dark irony that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is the one swooping in uh, to provide this, uh, I suppose, alternative. There's you know, a lot of people over the last six months have tried to build sort of Twitter alternatives, say, you know, and, and sort of take in all those Twitter refugees who don't want to be associated with Elon Musk's uh, app and his, you know, what everything that 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 uh, Tatum described there. So, uh, you know, I, I I think we'll have to see. I mean, it, it's possible that Twitter probably continues on and um, maybe Elon Musk, you know, I, I have no knowledge of this, but it's possible that the business just continues to shrink so much that he decides to kind of cut his losses and declare bankruptcy. But, you know, I think he's still personally passionate about Twitter or X um, and, you know, he enjoys it in some way, at least, you know, it's, it's sort of where he solicits feedback, where he engages with his fan base. And so I think that it has great personal importance to him. And as a still extremely wealthy man, I mean, he can keep the company going uh, for a very long time, especially if he continues to find ways to to cut costs. And and so, yeah, I think, you know, Twitter will probably still continue going forward in some way. We'll see all these other alternatives come up. They will never fully replace, you know, what Twitter was in the same way that other social networks of, of, of your, you know, such as Tumblr, you know, also continues to limp along. But I think a lot of people who used Tumblr 10 years ago would say, oh, it's not the same. And Reddit is also going through its own convulsions now. And, and, you know, with the CEO, they're sort of trying to exert more control over the platform that, you know, for many years was sort of decentralized. People who ran certain forums were kind of the ones in charge. And so, you know, this is just the way the world goes. And, and again, I might suggest let's all take a break from, from all of it for a while. I'm with you on that one. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us. I feel smarter already through this conversation. Really appreciate perspective and reporting. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.